Well, today we uh, come to the end of our sermon series through the New Testament book of First Thessalonians. This letter that was written by a church leader named Paul to a young church in the Greek city of Thessalonica. Now, I love this letter. I think it's powerful and punchy and, and pertinent, uh, especially in our day. But I've also got to admit that I'm looking forward to not having to say Thessalonians 20 times in a sermon. It's a, a bit of a, a tongue twister. Now, if uh, you've been around our church for a little while, if, if you know me, you probably know that I'm also a little bit mad about sport. I love sport. I love to talk about sport, play sport, watch sport, and just about any sport, except, of course, car racing. Now, I had someone you know, audibly object to that this morning, really passionate about their car racing. Now, I also love sports movies. Maybe there's other sports movie buffs in the, the room, but one of my favorites is Remember the Titans. Now, it's a little bit over the top if you've seen it. It's a little bit Hollywood, but it's also a great story. And it's based on a true story. It's set in 1971 in Virginia in the United States, and it's the story of two high schools, one black, one white, that are forced to integrate. And the movie kind of follows the story of the football team, their struggles to integrate, the challenges that they have to overcome, and ultimately their success as they learn to depend on each other and trust each other. It's a great story, and it's a, it's a good movie. Plus, it's got Denzel Washington in it, so, you know, it's got to be pretty good. Now, the reason I tell you about Remember the Titans is because in the passage that we're looking at today, we see something similar. We see a church community that was struggling to integrate. A church community that had some challenges to overcome, that needed to learn to depend on each other, to trust each other, to cultivate deep and healthy relationships. Now, as I mentioned, we're now at the end of this letter to First Thessalonians. And Paul has covered some pretty significant ground so far. He's reminded the Thessalonians of the gospel in chapter one. He's defended his ministry among them in chapter two. He's explained to them that suffering is a normal part of the Christian life. He's instructed them in the important areas of sex and work. He's informed them about death and the future and the return of Christ, which is what we looked at last week. And now he comes to the end. And when you read the passage that we read just, just a moment ago, it kind of sounds like just a random collection of sayings. Like Paul's getting to the end and he's running out of parchment and he realized that he's got all these other things that he wants to say. So he just kind of jots them down as quick as he can. But that's not actually what's going on here. Paul is addressing one important area in this section. He's speaking to one important issue in the life of the church. He's addressing our relationships. Our relationships with God and our relationships with one another. Now the question is, why would Paul address relationships? Why would he conclude the whole letter with a section on our relationships? Well, the answer is that our relationships really matter. The way we treat one another is incredibly important. In fact, I would go so far as to say, because I believe the Bible goes so far as to say, that our relationships matter as much as our theology. 
our relationships are as important as our doctrine. It's not either or, it's both and. For example, look at what we read in Acts chapter 2 about the early church. We looked at this a couple of months ago. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to theology, to doctrine, and to fellowship, to community, to relationships. Not either or, both and. Because both of these things are at the heart of the church. What we believe and how we treat one another. Biblical theology and beautiful relationships. Or as a pastor named Ray Ortland puts it, gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And this is what he says. He says, when the doctrine is clear, when what we believe is clear, and the culture, where we treat one another, the vibe, the tone is beautiful, that church will be powerful. We need both doctrine and culture. And this is why Paul speaks to relationships. But there's another important reason that Paul addresses relationships here for the Thessalonians. Now remember, this young church in Thessalonica, they were under pressure. They were experiencing opposition and persecution from those outside the church. And it's not hard to imagine that in this kind of environment, I mean, some scholars even suggest that some of their members may have been killed for their faith. It was that severe. In that kind of environment, it's not hard to imagine that relationships in this young church might have begun to be strained. They might have begun to fracture or even fall apart. And so Paul wants to write to this young church to strengthen their relationships. He wants to encourage them to stand together in the midst of the storm. He wants them to become a healthy, growing, mature church. And I think that this is a word in season for us today. I mean, there are all kinds of things happening at the moment that might tempt us towards distraction and division. And I don't think I need to list them. I think you read the same news articles and you see the same Facebook posts that I do. And this passage is a gentle reminder from God that our relationships with one another matter more than our differences with one another. That our love for one another should be deeper than our opinions on current events. That our unity in Christ is more important than our political persuasions. And so this passage can reorient us and it can give us a dose of gospel sanity for our relationships with one another. Because Paul speaks into three important relationships in the life of the Christian. He speaks into our relationships in three important areas that we're going to look at this morning. The first, if you're taking notes, is this. It's relationship with leaders. Relationship with leaders, verses 12 to 13. Now, have you ever walked in on a conversation and it was very obvious that the conversation was about you? It's a bit awkward, isn't it? For everyone involved. Well, looking at these verses is a little bit awkward because they're about me and people like me, church leaders. Specifically, they're about the attitude that church members should have towards church leaders. And so it's a little bit of an awkward conversation, but it's an important conversation because God has designed His church to have leaders. And it's important for those leaders to know what they should be doing, and it's important for members to know how they should relate to these leaders. And what we see when we look at this section is that Paul doesn't actually use any titles here. He doesn't refer to these leaders as either elders or pastors. 
And so it's likely that he's just referring to any kind of Christian leader in the church. And he tells them that what they should be doing. Here's what he says. The first thing is that they are to work hard among you. Work hard among you. Now, my opa, my granddad, he likes to joke that pastors work one day a week. <laughs> Maybe you think something similar. I mean, what exactly do pastors and church leaders do? And is it actually hard work? Well, Paul goes on to define for us what church leaders should be doing. Here's what he says. He says they are to care for you in the Lord and to admonish you. They are to care for you and to correct you, to provide for you and to protect you, to watch over you and to warn you. This is what church leaders are meant to be doing not in an overbearing kind of domineering way. That's the point of that little phrase there, they're to do this in the Lord, we're to care and to correct like Christ. We're to do this gently and graciously and lovingly. This is what church leaders are to do, they're to work hard, to care, to correct, to warn. Now, if you're still wondering what does that mean practically, what does a church leader do Monday to Saturday? Let me invite you to think about it this way. Imagine that you're given 500 people to look after. That's about how many members we have here at our church. And your job is to care for them and to make sure that they're on track. And you have to ask yourself, how are they going? Are they right with God? How do I know? Are they being taught? Are they being trained? Are they being discipled? Am I praying for them? What's happening in their lives? Are they sick? Are they sad? Are they rejoicing? Are they drifting away? Why haven't we seen them in so long? How can we encourage them to, to come back? How can we motivate them to get involved? How can we help them to take the next step? How can we move them towards Christian maturity? And when you think about that for 500 people, you realize it gets a bit complicated and messy and complex. And you realize there's plenty of things to do on the other six days, not to mention weddings and funerals and all the rest. And so a few weeks ago, Ben assured you that we love you and we do, we love you and we care deeply for you. We also wanna work hard among you. We wanna do our best to care for you, to, to protect you, to warn you, to guide you, to do whatever we can to present you blameless before God. Now, I guess the question is, well, what about you? What's your role in all of this? How should church members relate to church leaders? Well, Paul says in verse 12 there, very simply, acknowledge them. Literally, recognize them, respect them, don't take them for granted. To which he adds in verse 13, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Now, this doesn't mean put them on a pedestal, like some kind of pope or, or, or spiritual guru, as if leaders kind of belong to some different category of Christian. It's just not true. Leaders, along with everyone else, are, are sheep under the chief shepherd, Jesus. Now, this simply means respect, appreciate, love them, be thankful for them, supportive of them. Why? Not because of their position or title or anything like that, rather because of their work. Come alongside them because God has given them an important role to do, important work to do. And so when you look at it, there is this beautiful kind of mutual give and take in the church. Leaders are to earn respect by working hard, to love, to care, and to protect. 
Members are to give respect by showing appreciation and affection. And what's the result of this kind of mutual give and take? Well, look at verse 13. Paul says, live in peace with each other. The result will be the fulfillment of this verse, this command, a peaceful church environment, a lack of friction, tension, unity. There'll be unity and togetherness. And so every single one of us has a step forward that we can take today. For leaders, it's to work hard, to love, to care, to protect. And for church members, it's to show respect, appreciation, and affection. Now, at this point, you might be tempted to think of church as a little bit like a game of soccer or rugby union, because the Wallabies won last night. I just had to slip that in. We never win, so it's exciting when we do. You might be tempted to think of it as a game of soccer. Let's use that. Lots of people watching on and just a few people on the field playing the game. But that's not at all what the Christian church is like. It's not a spectator sport, it's a team sport and everyone's called to be involved. And this is what Paul goes on to tell us in the next section of this passage when he turns to look at our relationship with each other. Verses 14 to 15. Now John Stott, the the great British uh, theologian, he says on this section, the existence of pastors does not relieve members of their responsibilities to care for one another. And that is 100% right. It's not the pastor's job to care for everybody. Now, it's their job to make sure that it is happening, that there is care happening in the life of the church, but it's the responsibility of every believer and every member of the church to do the caring. This is what Paul goes on to say in verses 14 to 15. Here's how he begins. He says, and we urge you, brothers and sisters. He's talking to the Thessalonian church. He's talking to every believer. This is all of our responsibility together. In other words, when you come to church on a Sunday, when you go to growth group, when you go to men's breakfast or women's events or youth or young adults, don't just come to spectate. Don't just come to sit back and consume. Come to engage. Come to be useful. Come to encourage others. To be a blessing to others. To be used by God. This is what every believer, every member of the body of Christ is called to, to be involved in the work of ministry, to care and help one another. Now, how does God want to use us? What does he want us to be doing for others? Well, the answer is it varies depending on the person. Paul actually gives three different categories here and three different ways in which we should respond to them. And this is wise because we can't just do a one-size-fits-all for people because people are different and they're at different points and stages in their journey and we need to be wise about how we respond to them. The first thing Paul says is this. He says, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Now, in the context of the Thessalonians, this was probably those believers who had quit their jobs because they thought Jesus was coming back immediately and then started meddling. They had too much time on their hands and they had way too many opinions and and Paul told them to get back to work. And Paul says here that these people need to be warned. One commentator, he says this. He says, today, the irresponsible, the idle, the disruptive, take on many forms. From the gifted pew sitter who never gets involved to the opinionated busybody who criticizes everyone. Since the irresponsible have the potential to undermine God's work and to divide the fellowship, they must be warned. Some people need to be warned. 
Others, though, need something different. Others need to be encouraged. Here's what Paul says. He says, encourage the disheartened. Those who are worried, those who are fearful, those who are faint-hearted, whether it's because of opposition that they're experiencing or circumstances they're going through, some people have lost heart and they need to be comforted. They need to be cheered up. They need to be encouraged. They need an affirming word, an embrace. Maybe even they just need our open home and an open ear. And I actually think that this is partly what Paul is getting at later on in the letter when he instructs the Thessalonians at the end to greet all God's people with a holy kiss. Now, every Sunday, we get you to turn around and say hi to someone and wave. Well, from now on, you're going to have to pucker up. <laughs> and like I said this morning, just make sure you're not sitting near Ben. Nobody wants that beard, you know, up in their face. Now, the New Testament actually refers to a holy kiss four times. And it was very simply a way to greet one another that expressed love and unity. And it was holy because it was not sexual or hypocritical. It was sincere, genuine, and affectionate. And you know, it was especially meaningful for the believers in the early church in Paul's day, because many of them had actually been ostracized and cast from their own families. And so for their faith in Jesus. And so this warm greeting, it reminded them that they had a new family, a new family where they were loved and accepted and embraced. And so the point for us is not necessarily that we have to start kissing one another when we see each other. The point is that we have to create an environment and a culture that feels like home. When you walk in and you're embraced, you're received, you're welcomed. And I think this is one of the ways that we can encourage the disheartened, those who are losing strength and losing faith. And this is something we can all do. We can all be part of this. We can all encourage the discouraged. This is not just something for the pastoral staff. This is something for all of us. In fact, it's wonderful when you let us know about someone in our church family who's doing it tough. We really appreciate that because we just cannot possibly know everything that's going on in everyone's lives. And so we appreciate when you let us know so we can follow up and, and come alongside. But do you know what's even better? When you tell us about someone that's doing it tough, and then you say, and I'll follow them up. I'll reach out to them. I'll give them a call. I'll visit them. I'll make a meal. Because that is the body at work. That is the way that we can all encourage the disheartened. This is the responsibility of every believer to warn the idle, to encourage the disheartened, and then Paul goes on to say, to help the weak. Now, it's not clear if that's physical or spiritual weakness. It's probably both. But either way, the antidote's the same, to help, to do what you can with what you have to help other believers, to help those who are doing it tough. And then Paul adds at the end of this section this amazing command. He says, be patient with everyone. Now, that's an amazing command. And imagine if every single church community just put this one command into practice. Imagine if we all understood that we're all works in progress, that none of us have arrived yet, we're all on the journey, and we're all going to need a little bit of patience with one another. In fact, I 
read a story this week about Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham. She was driving home one day when she went past a building site that had just been finished. And there was a big sign on the construction site that said, end of construction, thank you for your patience. And when Ruth Graham saw that, she said, I'm going to put that on my tombstone, on my gravestone. And you know what? She did. You can Google it and you'll, you'll see an image of Ruth Graham's tombstone. And on it, it says, end of construction, thank you for your patience. Now that's true for every single one of us. Because until that day, we are all under construction and we're all going to need to have some patience with one another, to show grace to one another. Not to embarrass or to shame or to accuse one another, but to be patient with one another as we all grow together. And this is what should characterize the church, our relationships with one another, should be marked by honesty, encouragement, help, patience, and forgiveness. I mean, imagine if every single one of us came every single Sunday and we showed up and we said, Lord, I don't feel like I have very much to offer. I'm feeling pretty weak, pretty needy, pretty inadequate. But what I do have, I offer to you. Please help me to be useful to others today. That's a prayer that God will answer. Imagine the beauty of our fellowship and imagine the impact on our worship. And this is actually the third relationship that Paul turns to, the third and final relationship. He's talked about relationship with leaders, he's talked about relationship with one another, and now he talks about our relationship with God. And he begins by telling us about God's will for us. And here it is, verse 16, rejoice always, Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is God's will for you, to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. Now, what does it mean to rejoice always? Let me be very clear. It doesn't mean to be happy all the time. Because happiness is linked to what happens to you, and what happens to you is not always going to be happy. But to rejoice, to have joy, that goes deeper because that is linked to what you know is true, who you belong to, where you stand and where you're going. You see, joy goes deeper than our circumstances. Many of you would know Henny Botha. Henny and Yana have been part of our church for many, many, many years. You might also know that Henny has endured a horrific journey with his health in the last little while just a procession of issues and complications, the latest being that he's ended up in hospital with meningitis. And Henny wrote this on Facebook the other day. He said, the fact that God loves you does not mean that he adjusts his plans to suit your plans. He just includes you in his plans. You get to be part of greater things and what a privilege that is. And that's what it means to rejoice always joy even in the midst of difficult circumstances what about pray continually now this does not mean to pray all the time that would be ridiculous and impossible it simply means to pray anytime pray whenever and wherever god's ear is always open to you thirdly paul says give thanks in all circumstances now notice he doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. He says give thanks in all circumstances because no matter what you're going through, your circumstances might be terrible. You might not like them. You might not be happy about them, but you can still give thanks in the midst of them.
because God has not let you go. God is still holding you, and God will see you safely home. And so you have reason to give thanks. And so this is God's will for us, to rejoice, to pray, to give thanks. And Paul goes on in the next little section, and he addresses God's word. Here's what he says in verse 19. Do not quench, put out, snuff out the spirit. Literally, it means do not put out the spirit's fire. Now, what this means is probably defined by what Paul says next in verse 20 to 22. He says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Now, to quote Donkey from Shrek, prophecy is a little bit like an onion. It's all wrapped up in layers. And we need to peel back some of the layers to understand it. See, in the Old Testament, there were prophets, capital P. Under the inspiration of God's Spirit, they spoke God's message to God's people. Sometimes it was a word of prediction about the future. More often than not, it was a word of warning and encouragement in the present. And the words of the prophets became part of God's Word. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Hosea, and so forth. All of these men were prophets, capital P. They spoke God's Word and God's message. In the New Testament, after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit is poured out on all believers, the result is that all believers may prophesy, we read there in Acts 2. In other words, that all believers may know God's Word and speak God's Word. Now, that's not to say that they add to God's Word. There are no more capital P prophets today. We're no longer recording the words of prophets as Scripture. But according to 1 Corinthians 14, there is the spiritual gift of small p prophecy. This is what we might very simply call a timely word. Not necessarily a word about the future, but a word of encouragement, edification, comfort that does not contradict but lines up with God's word. Here's the way John Stott puts it. He says, God undoubtedly gives to some a remarkable degree of insight, either into Scripture itself and its meaning, or into its application to the contemporary world, or into his particular will for particular people in particular situations. It seems to be quite legitimate to call this insight prophetic insight and this gift a prophetic gift. It's to speak an insightful word of encouragement, edification, and comfort. And Paul says, when someone shares with you a word of encouragement or edification or comfort, he says, don't scoff at it, don't laugh at it, Don't dismiss it, but rather test it, he says. Now, how do you test it? Of course, you test it to see if it lines up with Scripture, God's Word. If it's faithful and true to what God has revealed to us in His Word. And if it is, Paul says, hold on to it. If it doesn't, he says, reject it. Paul wants us to pursue God's will. He wants us to know and to speak God's Word. And thirdly here, and finally here, he wants us to trust God's work. Paul prays this prayer for the Thessalonians, which is a beautiful prayer in verse 23. He says, may God himself, the God of peace, which I love that description of God, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, make you holy through and through, transform you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, God's goal for you is glory. To make you who he created you to be, to reflect his character, and to be transformed from the inside out, 
Now, if this sounds a little intimidating or unlikely to you, look at what Paul adds there in verse 24. He says, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. God will finish what he has started in your life. He who called you is faithful and he will do it. And this is how Paul ends the letter in verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Letters in the ancient world, they often finished with the phrase, be strong. But Paul finishes, finishes with the phrase, grace be with you. Because the Christian community is to be different. It's not to be a community of strong, shiny, successful people who show off how wonderful they are. It's a community of the weak, the needy, the sinful, that have found the one thing they most deeply need, the grace of God. And it's this grace from God that changes our lives from the inside out, that transforms our relationships with one another and will lead us safely home. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils and snares, we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that the work that you have begun in us, you will bring to completion. Thank you for the encouragement, Lord, to look at our relationships with one another and our relationship with you and to ask ourselves, are there some steps I need to take today? Have I drifted from your people, the church? And do I need to come back? Have I drifted from you, Lord? And do I need to return to you today? Thank you that you await us with open arms, ready to receive us. And thank you that your grace and your spirit empower us to move forward together, to increasingly become the people in the church that you have created us and called us to be, a people for your own possession and for your glory. And so use us, shape us, lead us, guide us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.